Oslo again, my friends. This is Steve, a.k.a. Baked and Awake, alias Victor Lopez, coming at you with episode 106 of the Baked and Awake podcast. Super pleased, as always, to be back sitting down to record the show for you today, and I'm excited to share the stories I've got for you. I say excited because of course I'm excited every time we get to sit down together and every time I get to come back to this thing we've built over the last almost three years now. Uh, At the time of recording here, it's July 3rd, 2020, a Friday morning. Got a few minutes left in the morning here. Uh, Today we've got a couple of stories, news stories that I feel are quite important, uh, both of which are related to topics that we've talked about quite a bit in the past here on the show, Uh, that being smart devices uh, like our smart speakers, our series and Alexas, Google Assistants, etc. And also a story, a recent story that I found about facial recognition software, once again, one of my favorite topics. Um, got a couple other matters that we'll get to as well, but let's jump right in to the first story, which found through Slashdot, as always. You know, one of my biggest news sources, Slashdot.org. If you're still not familiar with it by now, I've only been more or less promoting them as, I don't know, my favorite news curator for a while now years now since the start of the podcast for sure the source that the curated story is citing is Ars Technica and the headline of this story is uncovered 1000 phrases that incorrectly trigger Alexa Siri and Google Assistant this was written by Dan Gooden on the 1st of July 2020 under the main headline, we have a sub subheadline kind of writer underneath it that says the word election can trigger Alexa, Alexa. The word Montana can trigger your friend Cortana if you're a Google Assistant user. Uh, feel free to smoke along with me. I'm just going to puff a bowl as we jump into this story. And we may not read every word of this. This is, as I said, as always, you always have links to the full stories of anything we cover in the show notes, uh, or if you're getting this on YouTube in the description area of our posts. As Alexa, Google Home, Siri, and other voice assistants have become fixtures in millions of homes, Privacy advocates have grown concerned that their near-constant listening to nearby conversations could pose more risk than benefit to users. New research suggests the privacy threat may be greater than previously thought. The findings demonstrate how common it is for dialogue in TV shows and other sources to produce false triggers that cause the devices to turn on sometimes sending nearby sounds to Amazon, Apple, Google, or other manufacturers. In all, researchers uncovered more than 1,000 word sequences, including those from Game of Thrones, Modern Family, House of Cards, and news broadcasts that incorrectly trigger the devices. Quote, The devices are not intentionally programmed, Uh, Excuse me. The devices are intentionally programmed in a somewhat forgiving manner because they are supposed to be able to understand their humans. One of the researchers, Dorothea Colosa, said. They continue the quote, Therefore, they are more likely to start up once too often rather than not at all. I'm mulling that statement over. Okay. It's a voice-activated device. It should activate by voice. I suppose being too rigorous 
in your acceptance of the peculiarities of pronunciation, people's regional accents, speaking with food in your mouth, what have you, that these devices might be very disappointing to try to interact with if they weren't a little bit sensitive and ready to activate for you. So, okay, Dorothea. That which must not be said. <laughs> I like it. Examples of words or word sequences that provide false triggers include, for Alexa, we have unacceptable, election, and a letter. Each of those, it's easy to see how if you turn them over in your mouth, unacceptable, unacceptable, there's that X from Alexa in the middle, right? Election, there's, there's another hidden X phonetically in there. A letter, Alexa, a letter, Alexa, I got it, you know. Google Home, okay, cool, and okay, who is reading? Who says that? Okay, who is reading? <laughs> uh, Siri can be triggered by a city or hey, Jerry. Microsoft Cortana, as mentioned above, you say Montana, Montana, Cortana, Montana, Cortana, yeah. Fair enough. You know, those, uh, but that's not a thousand, is it? <laughs> uh, they have a video here embedded in the article. They show two videos below. They show Game of Thrones characters saying a letter and a modern family character uttering the phrase, hey, Jerry, and Alexa and Siri each respectively activate. In both cases, the phrases activate the device locally, where algorithms analyze the phrases. Okay, so your device takes you know, picks it up initially. After mistakenly concluding that these are likely a wake word, the devices then send the audio to remote servers, where more robust checking mechanisms also mistake the words for wake terms. In other cases, the words or phrases trick only the local wake word detection, but not algorithms in the cloud. When devices wake, the researchers said, they record a portion of what's said and transmit it to the manufacturer. The audio may then be transcribed and checked by employees in an attempt to improve word recognition. The result. Fragments of potentially private conversations can end up in the, public, in the company logs. The risk to privacy isn't solely theoretical. In 2016, law enforcement authorities investigating a murder subpoenaed Amazon for Alexa data transmitted in the moments leading up to the crime. Last year, the Guardian, the UK newspaper, of course, reported that Apple employees sometimes transcribe sensitive conversations overheard by Siri. They include private discussions between doctors and patients, business deals, seemingly criminal dealings, and sexual encounters. One could be forgiven for wondering why they need to transcribe really any of those things. The research paper, paper titled Unacceptable, Where is My Privacy? is the product of Leah Schonherr, Maximilian Gola, Jan Wiley, Torsten Eisenhofer, Dorothea Colosa, and Torsten Holes of Ruhr University Bochum and the Max Planck Institute for Security and Privacy. In a brief write-up of the findings, they wrote, Our setup was able to identify more than 1,000 sequences that incorrectly trigger smart speakers. For example, we found that depending on pronunciation, Alexa reacts to the words unacceptable and election, while Google often triggers to okay cool. Siri can be fooled by a city, Cortana by Montana. This is a bit repetitive at this point. The, the article paraphrased all this above. Computer by Peter. I guess the computer virtual assistant on PC, I'm not sure. Amazon by and the zone. Amazon and the zone. Echo can be triggered by tobacco. 
See videos with examples of such accidental triggers here. They have a hyperlink for us. This is None of this is new for us, right? If you've been listening to the podcast, we've been talking about these devices. They're in our phones, whether we want them or not, right? How difficult is it to really eliminate Siri out of your existence once she's been added to our phones? I'm sure the same is true for Alexa. Well, Alexa, of course, is the standalone device, right? I guess Amazon doesn't have a phone yet for us. If you have an Android phone, you're probably getting Google Assistant these days, though. Cortana, right? Hmm. I find this stuff super concerning. Super concerning, and we're not even trying to pump the brakes on any of this, are we? I will wrap it up with this story, though. We'll finish the official statement from the researchers. In our paper, we analyze a diverse set of audio sources, explore gender and language biases, and measure the reproducibility of the identified triggers. To better understand accidental triggers, we describe a method to craft them artificially. By reverse engineering the communication channel of an Amazon Echo, we are able to provide novel insights on how commercial companies deal with such problematic triggers in practice. Finally, we analyzed the privacy implications of accidental triggers and discussed potential mechanisms to improve the privacy of smart speakers. So this paper isn't all the way out yet, um, and they haven't made a copy of the unfinished paper available. This is like a general overview of their paper and what's coming with the full report. So... um, The writer here, of course, makes the very wise comment that for those concerned about the issue, it may make sense to keep voice assistants unplugged, turned off, or blocked from listening except when needed, or to forgo using them at all. Wow. The one of the, the, first comment a promoted comment so what does what does that mean i don't know who promoted the comment but the the promoted comment right below it's uh, is from somebody named lanyo and lanyo's has a title after their name ars tribunus militum so maybe they're ars technica staff or something but lanyo said just tried it with my alexa and all of the words mentioned triggered it Uh, Thanks to Dan Gooden of Ars Technica. Dan is the security editor at Ars Technica, which he joined in 2012 after working for The Register, The Associated Press, Bloomberg News, and other publications. So again, link to this article in the show notes. We read most of it, but there are those two videos as well as a hyperlink to additional examples of videos showing these different incorrect trigger words activating your speakers. And and sort of tying up the loose ends on this story, I will remind my listeners that I got out of this space. I had a special, a specific news brief that we were doing that I was doing called the Baked and Awake News Brief that I was pushing down to Alexa. And they were five to ten minute short podcasts that were you know, a little bit different focus um, than this. You know, I tried to keep them really, really tactical. But because uh, I wanted to be in this smart speaker space, right? Uh, you know, I'm a young podcaster. Or my podcast is young anyway. And uh, trying to expand into a fertile area. These smart devices are being sold by the millions into people's homes. We've talked about that on the show as well. There are many, many millions of these devices being given away as part of promotions and sold for dirt cheap everywhere. They're a big Christmas item list, holiday, you know, purchase in this country, uh, and not just in America, all around the world. Uh, I got out of the space, though, because I really felt like, for one, if you have those smart devices in your home and you're already listening to the podcast, you can absolutely search for and find and listen to Baked and Awake on your smart devices. I think that's lovely, and I'd love to 
hear from anybody who's ever done that, listened to me on an Alexa speaker or a Google Home, what have you. Uh, but I didn't, yeah, I just didn't want to record specifically for that medium when I feel like that space is, you know, I don't know, worse than an unregulated Wild West, just a really bad security risk vector in our homes. Uh, I deleted the Alexa app off my own phone. People who know me know that I don't, I don't use most of the location services features of my phone. I don't allow Google to keep favorite places or Apple to keep favorite places or, you know, try to shut down as many of those tracking vectors as I can. I know I've got huge gaps in that strategy. There's still, you know, half the apps on your phone literally won't work. They'll cry the instant you open them up if you don't have location services or some other really invasive permissions enabled. And it's often for apps that you really and at times struggle to understand what the frick they need these permissions for not a fan don't love it highly skeptical of it you should be too this next story is just as bad though it really is and then because of that i need to take my puff because i went ahead and read that story that first story without even taking my medicine So let's do that. I hope whatever you're smoking on is clean and pure and coming from something resembling an ethical source. I know that's hard as hell to really be sure of, isn't it? And you know, by by saying take control of that for yourself, I'm telling you to, what, commit a crime in a lot of places by growing a herb in your backyard? So I guess I'm not giving you that advice. I don't know. It's 2020 and we're still not totally, totally in the clear. There's people still sitting in jail every day for doing this very thing that we're doing together right now. Or for trying to help people get a hold of their herb. It's a bad scene. Keep listening to the podcast as we continue to grow. We'll keep spreading that good news. Talking about the fight and finding ways to help. I've signed every petition that's ever been put in front of me to mitigate or commute sentences for nonviolent drug offenders, etc., the Sentencing Project we've talked about here on the show before. Great organization that's literally all about that, about getting nonviolent drug offenders out of federal penitentiaries. We need more of them in the world. But yeah, get in touch. Talk to us at bakedandawake.com. It's always been the email. Let me know what ideas you have for me, for us together as a community to take a more active role in the fight. I feel like I'm doing nothing a lot of the time. You talk about it, you talk about it, you talk about it. What are you doing about it? I don't know. But I'd like to do more. So help me out. Help me out if you know, if you have an idea. Even if, you, even if you're just trying to come up with an idea and you want to talk to me about it just like this. Talk to us at bakedandawake.com. Get at me. All right. I got a couple puffs in me here, so let's let those settle in. And uh, we'll go to vice.com, also by way of slash dot. Jason Kobler on June 29th posted this story to Vice, published this story to Vice. Headline reads, Detroit Police Chief. 
facial recognition software misidentifies 96% of the time. Detroit police have used highly unreliable facial recognition technology almost exclusively against black people so far in 2020, according to the Detroit Police Department's own statistics. The department's use of the technology gained national attention last week after the American Civil Liberties Union and the New York Times brought to light the case of Robert Julian Borchok Williams. It's a mouthful for Robert. A man who was wrongfully arrested because of the technology. In a public meeting Monday, Detroit Police Chief James Craig admitted that the technology, developed by a company called DataWorks Plus, almost never brings back a direct match and almost always misidentifies people. So they're basically, frankly, beta testing this product out in the real world with real dangerous-ass cops and real citizens. Like, let's make no bones about that right now. You're going to get some commentary on this story. That's what's what's coming. Quote, if we would use the software only in brackets to identify subjects, we would not solve the case 95 to 97% of the time. So if they relied on the software only for identification, they wouldn't solve the case 95 to 97% of the time. That is, if we, and this is James Craig, the police chief speaking, That is, if we relied totally on the software, which would be against our current policy, if we were just to use the technology by itself to identify someone, I would say 96% of the time it would misidentify. Thank you for that incredibly candid statement, police chief. Todd Pastorini, a general manager at DataWorks Plus, told Motherboard that it does not keep statistics on the software's accuracy in real-world use. Horseshit! And it does not specifically instruct law enforcement how to use the software. (laughs) I don't believe I've heard of that, Todd. There's no statistics for that, Pastorini said. The matter is the quality of the probes used. I'm very reluctant, based on the last New York Times article... I was misquoted or slightly misrepresented based on the context that was used. You might know how a shovel works. You stick it in the ground to pick up dirt. And you might use it as a weapon. Facial recognition has been weaponized by the media to some degree. I understand the chief's comment. But unfortunately, many people don't. Wow, he's masterful. That was a really facile metaphor there with the shovel and then a great allusion at the end to his and the chief's nuanced degree of understanding about this software and how it's being used and how many people in air quotes my air quotes don't take from that what you will pastorini likened DataWorks Plus software to automated fingerprint identification systems where dozens or hundreds of potential matches are returned. It, quote, does not bring back a single candidate, he said. It's hundreds. They are weighted just like a fingerprint system based on the probe and what's in the database, base in brackets. The result of this, according to Detroit's own police officers, is that they are ultimately making the decision to question and investigate people based on what the software returns and a detective's judgment. This means that people who may have had nothing to do with a crime are ultimately questioned and investigated by police. In Detroit, this means, almost exclusively, black people. So far this year, through June 22nd, the technology had been used 70 times. And this is according to publicly released data, and that looks like that's a clickable link to get us to that source. And uh, that that link takes me to a PDF, nice, uh, from the Detroit Police Department. So this is a DPD report, weekly report on facial recognition. That's pretty cool that they're doing that. I'm basically looking at a bunch of bar graphs here. Um, link in the show notes, right? We're going to go back to the story itself. 
So that's Detroit Police Department data, and that clickable link looks like a PDF that you can download if you want it. In 68 of the 70 cases, the photo fed into the software was of a black person. <laughs> In two of the cases, the race listed was listed as you, which likely means unidentified. And other reports from the police, you stands for unidentified. So it's probably guys like me. The Detroit Police Department did not respond to a request to clarify. All right. I mean... Anyway, these photos were largely pulled from social media, nice, 31 out of 70 cases, or a security camera, 18 out of 70 cases. So just in case you have any illusions about where the police might ever want to go to find pictures of anybody, but yeah, if like you think you might be investigated for anything, they're going straight to your Facebook, they're going straight to your Insta, they're going straight to whatever platform you've ever used. They'll probably check your classmates.com. They'll check your MySpace, your defunct MySpace that you probably can't even access anymore. You think that's not archived? It is, right? Obviously. They embedded a lot of that weekly report. Uh, it looks like uh, the first page of it there on in the, in the article, so you can read it right in the scroll. The headings on these reports are like prior week, race of probe photo, quarter to date, race of probe photo, year to date. Race of probe photo, prior week, gender of probe photo. So uh, it looks like race, gender, and source are the lines that they're giving us there. It's definitely not the full report because uh, the DPD report page has stuff with crime counts, leads, etc. There's um, Yeah, there's two pages here on the report. Several cities have banned police from using facial recognition software which has well-known racial bias issues, in parentheses, and many false positive issues as well. Detroit, however, had a very public debate in 2019 about the use of facial recognition and instead decided to regulate its use rather than ban it altogether. Late last year, the city adopted a policy which bans the use of facial recognition to, quote, surveil the public through any camera or video device. So let's see. They adopted a policy that bans the use to surveil the public through any camera or device. Okay. It bans its use on live stream and recorded videos and restricts but does not ban its use at, ready for it, protests. According to the policy, the software must be used only, quote, on a still image of an individual and can only be used as part of an ongoing criminal investigation. So obviously the software is able to generate images for analysis, whether we were calling them a result or not, maybe a candidate, um, certainly of video. Make no mistake. But they specify it must be used only, quote, on a still image of an individual. That's probably important also in, in terms of not applying the same, I don't know, um, analysis to a group or more than one subject at once. The software checks images across a state database of photos, which include mugshot images. As part of these regulations, the police department is required to release weekly reports, so that's where that came from, about the use of the technology, which show that it has been almost exclusively used on black people. Williams, the citizen in question who is apparently arrested and convicted apparently on this, Williams was arrested before the policy went into practice. Craig said during the meeting that the media, that's Police Chief Craig once again, that during the meeting that the media... It ran through DataWorks facial recognition system was, quote, a horrible video. It was grainy. It would have never made it under the new policy. If we can't obtain a good picture, we're not going to push it through to the detective. Sounds good. Police Chief Craig and his colleague, Captain Arik Tosk, Toski, T-O-S-Q-U-I, forgive me, said that they want to continue using facial recognition 
because they say it can be a tool to assist investigators, even if it doesn't often lead to arrest. But even when someone isn't falsely arrested, their misidentification through facial recognition can often lead to an investigator questioning them, which is an inconvenience at best and a potentially deadly situation at worst. According to Toski, the technology has been used on a total of 185 cases throughout the years. This is just a very few years, you know, a couple, two or three years that these things have been in the hands of these folks. I want to say 2017, 2018 at the earliest. The majority of the cases, the detective reported back that, in brackets, the software was not useful. Despite these problems, DataWorks Plus said that it does not guide law enforcement on how to best use the software. Quote, probably from our boy Todd again, We don't tell our customers how to use the system, Pastorini said, yes indeed. There's already law enforcement policies. It is my experience, the clearer the image, clearly is going to affect the likelihood of a more solid result. The Detroit Police Department did not respond to a request for further comment. In recent months, there has been a new movement by city council members to ban the use of the technology. Uh, There was a contributor on this one, Jordan Pearson. So thank you to Jason Kobler of vice.com for that very interesting story. Um, that's coming through there like motherboard header. So uh, link will be in the show notes on that one as well, for sure. I'm, I don't even really need to comment much on, on that one. I just am deeply concerned by pervasive mass surveillance as those of us in the tinfoil hat society of the world would probably most likely refer to this sort of thing. Yeah, what's the solution, right? Walking around with face masks on <laughs> outside. Uh, I don't think that saves us either, though. So, I really don't. You know, I had like a, a note about our local virus status update for Washington State. Uh Anybody paying attention probably knows in the last couple of days the the mayor sent the police back into Capitol Hill to take down the Chaz slash CHOP, the uh, Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone slash Capitol Hill Occupied Protest. I did visit it briefly um, a couple weeks back, just walked around up there for a couple hours. I didn't spend a heavy amount of time there at all. Uh, it was a messy and tattered looking music festival kind of vibe that uh, was going on up there by the time I visited it, you know, a uh, week or two into that exercise. My main takeaway from that was that, wow, it was uglier than I thought it was going to be. Nobody bothered me in any way, shape, or form, and nobody was bothering anybody else that I could tell. That kind of thing was never going to be pretty. Uh, there's no way it could have. So, uh, you know, all the garden planter beds in the world don't make up for dirty underwear and stuff laying all over the sidewalks in different places because people didn't really have their acts too together in terms of a lot of their camp encampments but um i admire their cheek i i think they obtained that small temporary concession whether you want to call it a victory or an opportunity or a disaster um Rather unexpectedly, I don't think it was anticipated that the city would respond in the way that they did. Um, And that maybe was a really effective response in a lot of ways because, in my opinion, in my mind, I say to myself, how long can anybody keep up the energy to keep doing what they were doing up there? Uh, Not everyone in the Chaz was homeless people. A lot of them were protesters who came from homes that they do have and that presumably they could have left to go home to any time to take a shower or get cleaned up or or just when they decided they were done fighting right it's tiring to be out 
I know, I know. Some people would be like, well, they were just getting high and shooting each other and laying around in the park. I mean, I'm not even going to say agree to disagree. Just do your own thing if that's all you think that was going on. I, I can't help you. We're in a different place. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't organized. Weird shit was going on in terms of, obviously, a couple of people got hurt. A couple of people died over these past few weeks. The protesters lay the blame at the feet of the police. The police and the mayor, of course, lay the blame at the feet of the protesters. I suspect it'll be quite some time before we're able to look back on what really happened and paint any kind of objective picture of how successful it was or was not. Uh, so that's my very short take on Chaz. Uh, I'm glad I went up to check it out. I'm glad that it happened. I'm sad for people who lost their lives. I won't say because of it. This, those incidents were because of forces that have been exerting themselves on us as a society forever, generationally, for decades now. Yeah, Washington State, we're, we're requiring universal masking outside now. Uh, got, you know, notification via email from the Washington State, like Department of Labor. I get, I had a business license here in the state, and I don't really do much with that particular business license. But, uh, of course, that gets you on lots of mailing lists for the state for in case you have employees and things like that. Um, so it, it kind of works out great because I kind of get that little insider information just like the official spiel on what's going on with reopening or you know anything law-wise tax-wise etc in the state so a lot of the communications employers you know in whatever state you're in, in in the United States here will get will be these type of messages right to help you know how to stay compliant so uh, that onus of Staying masked, it also extends to all the stores, retail establishments and restaurants and things. And, and it's, I guess, being put on the individual businesses to figure out how to enforce that. So that should be interesting to see, as we've already seen lots of showdowns going on over masking in public. So uh, I'm definitely not a big fan of it. I, I'm, I'm not excited about it. Uh, we, we do stay compliant as a family when we're out and it is at this point you know we're fatigued from being scared about the virus ourselves uh, so it's probably just as much a matter of social peer pressure and remaining compliant as it is out of real concern at this point speaking only for ourselves right now I do believe the virus is real I do believe people are getting sick and dying I I don't believe 5G towers have caused the coronavirus. Somebody's going to comment on YouTube all about it just because I opened my stupid mouth about it again. Uh, so yeah, our all our planned phase four, quote unquote, reopening is, is rolled back. We're, we're, we're pausing right now, kind of. They're staying at what they call phase three, and I anticipate any time in the next couple of weeks if these news stories that keep getting pushed down to us all on our phones are any indication we'll be rolling right back into lockdown here in a very short amount of time. So the prepper-minded among you should be making your lists and checking them twice and getting yourselves restocked for a second round of lockdowns because they're coming. One of the sources that I use, my favorite source really for virus-related news specifically, is the Turbine Labs Daily Executive Briefing. I mentioned it one or two episodes ago on the podcast talked about it comes to my inbox almost every morning and it's like an AI curated digest um, 
pretty good little concise report and it comes in almost every day. I get probably get it five days a week. Um, and, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes slash description for you on that, but turbinelabs.com, you should be able to also poke your way around on their homepage and get to the coronavirus daily update. So yeah, that is what's up with the virus. That's we're just, we're literally taking it one day at a time, gardening our faces off as always, um, gardening like crazy and, and happy that the garden's been doing pretty okay so far this season. Definitely fighting aphids and all the usual. And that's always hard when you try to be more of an organic approach in your garden because you can't just, you know, douse them with crazy chemicals. Uh, so a lot of manual removal of things like aphids and a lot of water. So uh, anybody who's gardening, you know the struggle. If you're not gardening already, by the way, I will absolutely advocate for you at all times. Start gardening. Uh, container garden, windowsill garden, kitchen, window, herb garden, whatever you got to do. If you got a yard, get out there and dig that sucker up. Get some plants in the ground. That's me saying I foresee food shortage issues on the horizon for all of us. And I try not to be a fear monger. I really do. If you guys catch me turning into one, call me out on it. Of course. Everybody needs a reality check sometimes, but right now I feel like Investments in your preparedness for yourselves and for your families are investments very well made and that will contribute greatly to your personal peace of mind and a general attitude within yourself and those closest to you who you love so much and who are relying on you to feel that same confidence resonating and welling up inside them when the adversity does hit. When that shit hits, you'll be able to say, okay, guys, we're not excited about this, but we're kind of ready for this. We've been thinking about this. We're going to be okay. Um, okay, so I want to have some fun, though, all right? If you've made it this far, I thank you. I love you. I love you so much. Take care of each other, everybody. I want to go out with a, a little tiny piece of advice. When you're out going on your walks in your local area, visit those little local little free libraries that are in front of people's yards and houses. It's always a great little window into the mind of the block that you're on, <laughs> what you get out of those things. My listeners are well acquainted with the fact that I'm a Tartaria-loving, mud-flood, mystery-investigating freak. Absolutely can't get enough of that mystery. And... uh Seattle, Washington, of course, is a sort of a hotbed for at least North American discourse on this topic, right? StolenHistory.org and the famous uh, user Tyler Durden on there who created one of the first best comprehensive posts about Grand Tartaria ever. Came from right here in Seattle, Washington. Seattle itself has every single earmark on the checklist of what to look for in a mud-flooded city. Everything from a history of a great fire, as well as earthquakes that caused destruction of the early city here in the region. leftover underground remnant of the city beneath the streets of the modern world. Incredible architecture, some of which boggles the mind when you get down and look at it with your Tartarian 
investigator goggles on. If you're new to all of this, welcome. I don't know where you've been, but I'm glad to have you. Check out my YouTube channel by the very same name, Baked and Awake, for several videos that I've done personally on this, as well as discussions I've had with a couple of the top sort of scholars or researchers in this subject, um, those being, of course, the great Philip Druzhenin from Russia, Andreas Exertus from the Tartary Nova Discord community. There are so many other amazing people, John Levy, Conspiracy R Us, The Mind Unveiled, The New Earth YouTube channel, Global Vision. I hope you're taking notes right now, people. Flat Earth British. The list goes on. You get started on Grand Tartaria. If you haven't already, you'll be tripping. So take a puff. Check out this book I got from the Little Free Library a couple months back. We're going to read the intro to Mysterious Builder of Seattle Landmarks, written by Paula Pedersen. How stoked was I when I opened up a little free library and I see this title of this book, Mysterious Builder of Seattle Landmarks. Let's read the book jacket. After decades of believing her mother's tale that Danish immigrant Hans Pedersen left them penniless, Paula uncovers the truth about her father's wealth and prolific contributions to Seattle. She discovers her mysterious father's boom-to-bust life in the early 1900s as she grapples with family secrets and heartbreaking deception in this very personal memoir. A coming-of-age journey from Seattle to Singapore, Shanghai, Honolulu, New York, New Jersey, Maine, and North Carolina. Paula's elite schooling taught her much about the nuances of social echelons and how that affects one's life choices. So our friend Paula here is a you know, blue-haired 70-year-old woman by the time she published this. The book jacket literally features the walrus bas-relief motif on the exterior of what I believe is the, they call it like the Arctic Club in Seattle. I wonder if they make a note inside the book jacket here about the rear cover. I've taken a picture of this very building and it's an incredible detailed walrus motif with like a shield below it, um, a olive branch and or scaled reptilian scale uh, detail pattern going around the borders of the shield itself. There are probably over a hundred of these walruses that by the way are three or four feet high each uh, on the exterior of this building you know probably of course like molded concrete and stuff like that so, uh, you know i'm not here to make grandiose claims that i know by looking at this that oh you couldn't have made those walruses in the 1920s come on give me a fucking break of course you could have but they sure are freaking stunning when you see that building in downtown seattle i believe it's the arctic club I've been in it one time inside like the downstairs of it where, you know, it's like a members only club, but the riffraff can go to the the basic lounge at the lobby of the building, uh, probably as your entree to getting involved with the club for real. So anyway, I was so excited to find this book and I'm hoping to, you know, read the whole thing really soon, but I've read this intro already and I thought it was a great introduction to the idea of this book you can find this book for just a few bucks on amazon i think it was six or seven dollars on amazon so maybe she um published this independently i'm not sure we're never going to stop looking into tartaria around here so hope you love it as much as i do so in the forward we have seattle poised for population and economic growth hans Pedersen reached seattle in 1886 
at a time when the city was poised for rapid population and economic growth. For much of the remaining 47 years of his life, Seattle provided the perfect backdrop for a successful career in construction, one of the best places in the world he could have lived. Hans arrived just 35 years after the Denny Party founded Seattle in 1851. The city was still largely a frontier town. Seattle's economy was then based on timber, fishing, wholesale trade, shipbuilding, and shipping. Expansion of the Northern Pacific Railway to its terminus in Tacoma, 40 miles south of Seattle, was completed in 1883. Tacoma and Seattle both vied for state capital status early on in the territory and then the young state's history. Shortly thereafter, Seattle managed to, and this is an interesting turn of phrase, managed to force a connection to the railroad, triggering a rapid population influx in the late 1880s. In the first half of 1889, it was estimated Seattle was gaining 1,000 new residents per month. In March of 1889, there were 500 buildings under construction, most built of wood. Growth came to an abrupt halt with the Great Seattle Fire of June 6, 1889. The fire destroyed 116 acres in the heart of Seattle. The city rebuilt from the ashes with amazing speed. That statement is it's, it, it features strongly in the Tyler Durden StolenHistory.org mega thread about Grand Tartaria. And as I'm referencing that particular thread now for the second time this episode, I will do the work for you. You're welcome. I'll get that link into the show notes so that you can start your journey right there. The crux of the mega threads point was where the hell did all these bricks come from and how did you guys build these buildings as fast as you did even accounting for a thousand new residents arriving per month how many of those thousand new residents arriving per month during this period of time were part of the physical labor crew that would be capable of let alone physically let alone skilled enough to contribute to that effort. Read the thread, all right? Just read the thread. They do. He does a much better job than I do right now, that I'm going to do right now, that is for sure. So I say again, the city rebuilt from the ashes with amazing speed. The fire created the opportunity for extensive municipal improvements, including widened and regraded streets. She uses the term regraded streets here and is referencing the very famous Denny Hill regrade. Uh, the Denny party was one of the founding families and expeditions for the white people who came to the region and for which much of uh, many little spots in downtown Seattle are still named to this day. I've done some video on walking around up on the Denny Regrade, so please check out the YouTube channel. Please, God, check out the YouTube channel, because yes, we're always first and foremost a podcast here, but I live here in Seattle. I have a phone with a camera. I have a standalone video camera, and I have the ability to go and look for all of us, and we're not done doing that. I've visited Spokane, Washington, I've visited Olympia, Washington, and I've visited sites in Tacoma, Washington as well, uh, as well as Burlington and other smaller areas, which I'd, I'd like to continue to do more of those small town visits, because one of the first times I ever went looking for Tartaria and for the mud flood was in Burlington, Washington, a couple of years ago in the past now, and hand to God, the first time I said to myself, I'm going to look for something on the way to where I was going. I was driving for work at the time. 
took a break off the side of the road, literally almost stopped randomly. What did I find? Mud Lake Road. Mud Lake. And a town with a main street with several of the buildings completely half below the normal height of the current road and town. Needless to say, that was a super gratifying stop <laughs> for me. So check out the YouTube channel for all of these. I, I particularly recommend my video on Olympia, Washington. I worked pretty hard on that one, and my friend Whistler helped me out with that by being my guide down there, a uh, fellow member of the Tartary Nova Discord community, where you can also get literally real-time tsunamied with research and uh, tidbits about Tartaria from over a thousand different people now active in that community all around the world. So, uh, and that, that trip to Olympia and meeting up with Whistler definitely came as an outgrowth of being a part of that community. So, uh, really fun to meet your internet friends in real life these days. I know Whistler will be listening to this, uh, episode when it comes out as well. He's out on the road traveling, doing some solo lone wolf nomad life camping and uh, I'm loving following his adventures along on Instagram so yeah so let's get back to it though we're almost done we're almost there so they regraded right a professional fire department also came out of this resurgence reconstructed wharves I think we did our seawall after the great fire and municipal waterworks New construction in the burn district was required to be of brick or steel. The population in 1890 was 42,837, making Seattle the 70th largest city in the country. This almost doubled to 80,671 by the year 1900, boosting Seattle to 48th largest city. Growth was propelled by rapid immigration, driven by the Klondike Gold Rush. Many city neighborhoods got their start during this period. Streetcars began providing transportation once the close-in areas were settled, and growth moved to the outlying neighborhoods. All of this development was the perfect setting for Hans to thrive. At the beginning of the 20th century, Seattle City Engineer R.H. Thompson championed the plan to level the steep hills that rose to both the south and north of downtown. A seawall was built to contain the dirt sluiced from the Denny Regrade. There's our seawall. Creating the current waterfront. In the wake of the gold rush, and with a rapidly growing population, they, they don't mention that this destroyed the Duwamish River, displaced the Duwamish indigenous people, and polluted the entire area for the rest of time to the present day. They're still cleaning the Duwamish as we speak. They only got fish back in that bitch a few years ago. I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, used to be like a major salmon, salmon run. Seattle was primed for a construction boom. Hans Pedersen caught this wave and built a successful career until the onset of the Great Depression brought construction to a virtual halt. The rapid growth of the city's population makes clear how wise Hans was to leave Minnesota and come to Seattle. Between 1900 and 1910, Seattle's population almost tripled to 237,000. Damn! 194, boosting Seattle to the country's 21st largest city. Demand for new housing was enormous, creating the opportunity that Hans exploited for the rest of his life to build and immediately lease new apartments. The city experienced a shipbuilding boom, which peaked during World War I, but crashed at war's end. Interesting. Yeah, we do still have shipbuilding to some extent going on here in Washington, you know, more like fishing boat class ships. I don't know that we're making tankers and things these days around here. By 1920, population was up to 315,000 and change now 20th largest in the U.S. 
I mean, because let's see here. Back in 1900, they had 80,000 people. And in 1920, or 19, yeah, 1920, they had 315,000 people. That's a lot of growth in 20 years. Uh, it kept growing. It was, the, it was leading the U.S. in growth until 1930, but at a decelerating rate. After the onset of the Great Depression, growth virtually stopped. The Depression sets the stage for Paula's mother's choices. This foreword was written by Robert Wiley III. Uh, so, as you can tell, I'm going to have a great time getting into this book. And uh, I hope one or two of you pick it up at Amazon as well. Uh, I guess here I am taking all this time to tell you about it and read you the intro. Yeah, I'll, I'll create a link or, or find the link and drop that in the show notes for you too. Because uh, this kind of guy I am. <laughs> all right. That's all I got for you today. I think that's quite enough, don't you? Let's reconvene very soon. Uh, between now and then, I want you guys to get out in your gardens. Between now and then, I want you guys to seriously, seriously, go talk to your prepper uncle or prepper cousin or friend down the block or just turn into him yourself. Get going. I know Costco's selling prepper food and survival food now. They're selling everything that you could ever want for this stuff. Now's your time. The shelves are being restocked, no problem right now in most cases, in most ways. But I'll tell you what I did see today. Went to the local transfer station, a.k.a. the dump, with my son. Dumped off some stuff because we've been cleaning the yard. Saw and snapped a picture of a sign that I had already seen on social media and didn't believe when I saw it on Instagram. It said, due to current national coin shortage... Uh, all cash transactions need to be exact change until further notice. Okay? So, you're smart. You understand what the implication of an of a odd sort of statement like that could potentially be like a harbinger of. Where's the coins? Where's the alloys that go into minting coins? Did it go away? Or are people hoarding their coins and their metals? Are they pulling them out of circulation? I don't know. I don't even need to speculate on it. You guys are smarter than me. You guys tell me what that means. All right? Follow me on Instagram if you want to see that picture. I'll post it later today. I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to get this thing edited up for you guys, throw in a little intro and outro music. I think I'll try to keep it minimal this round because I got yelled at by a couple of people on YouTube for too loud of a mix last episode. Sorry, guys. I'm just not that good at sound production. It's a fact. Um, yeah, I was going to beg you guys for uh, getting in touch with me if you wanted to help as a research assistant today, too. Uh, we'll talk about it more next episode, but if you just heard that and you made it all the way to an hour plus in this podcast and, and you do like looking things up on the internet for somebody you've never met, probably, for free, more or less. You know, like air hugs and high fives and thank you on the show kind of status, put you in the show notes kind of status. Get at me. Talk to us at bakedandwake.com. All right, you guys. Get after it. And you know what you need to do while you're getting after it. Smoke that indica. Do shit anyway.